One thing you should know about me, anyone who's known me for a long time knows, I have a severe uh, disinterest in football and all other sports. <laughs> so it's funny because this morning I thought of a gratuitous football uh, analogy that I can actually use in my uh, teaching. And so you have to appreciate, though, I'm the last person in the world who should use uh, a football analogy. So if you don't know me, it's funny. Trust me. Okay. <laughs> So, um, Danae and I moved here from Seattle a little over a year ago. One of the implications of that is that our Facebook feeds have been uh, nothing but Seahawks all week, right? And uh, everyone's really excited. Uh, in fact, I saw photos uh, this morning. One of the people I went to seminary with got married yesterday, and she and her husband uh, showed up to their wedding reception in jerseys. She still had the dress on underneath, but just like dress on the bottom, jersey on top. They're enthusiastic, right? And... Uh, the, 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 uh, the Seahawks merchandise, a lot of it has the number 12 on it. Uh, I'm told the reason for this is, I guess there must be 11 people on, this, on the field at once. Like I said, I don't care about football. Is that right, 11? So they, they talk about the 12th man, and the idea is the fans are the 12th member of the team, right? So they're in the, in the, the stands cheering, and the 11 other people are on the field. And so what this is doing is bringing people into this... Uh, feeling of being a part of something bigger than themselves, right? They're a part of the team. They're a part of this thing that the Seahawks is. And so if they win, uh, we all, it's a win for all of us, right? Uh, and so there's this sense of people being a part of something bigger than themselves. And similarly, while I have no interest in football, I was a little offended that you'd promote the uh, Broncos, Eric. <laughs> because that's my, that's, my, that's my peeps. I mean, I don't even, I'm not going to watch the game. I don't have an interest in it, but... but I still have this sense of I identify with my city and the people and the things that they care about. And so, <laughs> yeah. And no one here I, I appreciate has any stake in this game because it's Los Angeles. No one from Los Angeles playing. Anyway, uh, the series that we're a part of about, uh, that we've been doing for the last handful of weeks, if you have been around, has to do with what the church is, uh, different metaphors by which we understand what the church is, and uh, so if you recall, Linnea talked to us about the church as a building, not a building that we go to, but uh, we ourselves as the stones in a building, making up a temple kind of thing in which God's presence dwells. Um, and then uh, Lisa talked to us about uh, the church as the family of God. And Mark talked to us using the image of an airport uh, and sort of this idea that uh, the church is here to equip the saints. We're not... Uh, it's not that leaders tell everybody what to do. It's that leaders are here and the whole community is here to empower one another, to enable us to do the things that God's calling us to do, uh, and that we come together to, to enable each other to do that and equip each other to do that. Uh, we also heard uh, from Troy and Suze about uh, the church as the bride of Christ, um, et cetera. And so all of these, I think, they, these metaphors tell us a lot of different things about the church, but they all in some way or another get at this idea that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. We're not just individuals coming here to our little meeting and having a thing with God. We're part of something that's bigger. Uh, Basileia is something bigger than ourselves that we participate in. And in fact, uh, Basileia is part of something much bigger than that that we participate in. And so that's kind of one of the big things we've been trying to get across and make sure everyone has at the front of their minds. Uh, so so the, what I'm talking about today uh, isn't so much a metaphor for the church, it's more uh, a sense of the big story that we're a part of and how we would situate ourselves in 
uh, God's big story of salvation. And so I'm talking about the church as Israel. Um, I have to give a disclaimer. Uh, inconveniently, if, depending on your perspective, there's also a nation state called Israel that has existed since the 1940s. This is not necessarily the same thing that I'm talking about when I say Israel, which I will a great deal. Um, the Israel that I'm talking about is uh, the chosen people of God that we read about in Scripture. It's a theological concept. Uh, there may be overlap between that and the nation uh, that we hear about on the news, but I'm not trying to say anything political. I'm not commenting on foreign policy, nothing like that. I'm talking about the people of God. Uh, in particular, to understand just a little bit more, what, am I, what, what is this, uh, what is Israel in Scripture? I can't tell you the whole thing, but <laughs> I actually thought about trying to say the whole story, and it's going to take too long. Uh, <laughs> so in the, at the beginning of the book of Genesis, <laughs> at the beginning of the book of Genesis, we read about uh, humanity basically being in a state of uh, escalating rebellion against God, escalating sin violence, exploitation, um, people not uh, living according to their God-given purpose, but rather uh, hurting other people for selfish gain and things like that. And so uh, to address this, God calls uh, a man named Abraham and his wife and says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your offspring. And uh, in you, all the nations of the world, the whole world will be blessed. So there's this sense in which God chooses a particular line of people to bless every line of people. And I don't want to talk about that too much because Mark's going to go into that in more detail in a couple of weeks, I think. Uh, but there's this idea that this is a chosen people that has a special relationship with God for the benefit of the world. Uh, the people uh, by the end of Genesis are in Egypt uh, and at the beginning of Exodus. Uh, they have multiplied greatly in Egypt because God has blessed them. And that's part of the promises. And so uh, the Egyptians see them as a threat. And so the Egyptians realize these guys are going to uh, multiply to such an extent that they'll overpower us. We need to do something about that. So they enslave the people. They put them to uh, forced labor. And the people cry out. And God, because they're God's people, hears their cry and saves them, delivers them from slavery, um, brings them into the wilderness and into the promised land. And on the way, God gives them uh, the Torah, that is the instruction about how to live as God's people. I've talked about Torah before. And uh, then as they're about to enter the land, Moses um, reiterates the instructions that God has given them and says a lot of things about how they should live in the land and says one particular thing that I'm going to teach you now. So you're going to learn some Hebrew. <clears throat> so um, I'll, I'll say one word and you repeat it after me. I'll tell you afterwards why these particular words are of significance. So everybody say, you can look up there if you need to cheat. Everybody say Shema. Shema. Second word, it's Israel with a Y in front, and you say it like Yisrael. So everyone say Yisrael. Yisrael. Okay, and the third word uh, is what Jewish people would say in place of the proper name of God, because the proper name of God is believed to be too sacred, too holy, to presume oneself to say it. And so instead, out of reverence, they would say uh, my Lord, sort of to not, you know, not to get too close because God is so much holier, so much bigger. So, so to say Adonai is to say the most holy thing that you can say uh, in a Jewish mindset, in the Hebrew language. The holiest word you can say, you would utter it with great reverence. So everybody say with reverence, Adonai. Adonai. Fourth word, Eloheinu. Eloheinu. 
And then uh, the fifth word's Adonai again, so go ahead and give me another reverent Adonai. Adonai. And for the last word, you need to learn a new consonant. <clears throat> so, uh, this is obnoxious, but if everyone does it, it'll be all right. Make that sound like, uh, you know, the loogie hawking sound? <laughs> everyone just go. <sighs> think, about, think about what you're doing in your throat. Now take that and shorten it to a consonant, a quick little. <clears throat> okay. Now you're going to use that new consonant to say echad. Brilliant. Okay, so I'll do two words at a time. Say them after me with vigor. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. And what this means is, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And uh, this constitutes the most crucial, I, would, I think it's fair to say, the most crucial uh, verse of all scripture for Jewish people. It's central to how they understand their identity. And um, if you go into a uh, service at a synagogue today, uh, towards the beginning of the service, the people will say, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Um, in fact, it begins the uh, sort of one of the key Jewish prayers, um, a, a prayer that's used regularly, like you might think of the Lord's Prayer as Christians. Um, so this prayer that is central to how we understand our covenant with God, how Israel understands who they are uh, as God's chosen people, essentially. Now, uh, in, in Jesus' day, we uh, have every reason to, to believe, based on evidence that we have, that this was already a prayer that people were praying and that it was one of the central prayers and that this verse was one of the central verses in how Jewish people understood who they were. Um, the second verse of the prayer, I won't, I'll spare you the Hebrew for now. It's a long prayer, but I'll just tell you the second verse because it'll be familiar. It goes, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So if you know your Gospels, you recall that when Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment of all? He says, the most important commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So evidently for Jesus, this was important. In fact, uh, as a Jew in his day, we would have every reason to imagine that he woke up every morning and said, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Similarly, Paul, we would think, woke up every morning, prayed this prayer. Uh, John and Peter and Jude and just about everyone who wrote the New Testament and many of the people we find uh, addressed in the New Testament, this is something that on a daily basis they're saying in prayer. It's shaping their identity. It's crucial to how they understand themselves. So we'll understand some stuff about them if we understand this. So this prayer uh, and these, these verses in particular encapsulate the sense of uh, election, that is the covenant between Israel and God. They have a special relationship and so they say the Lord is our God. At the same time, there's this sense of uh, wholehearted devotion to God, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. It's a total devotion to God. It's our whole life is dedicated to God's purposes. Our whole life is given to God lovingly. And then uh, thirdly, there's this sense of exclusivity. It's just to God that this devotion is given. The Lord is one. There is no other. Um, the, the fact that, that uh, Israel affirmed that God is one, that there's no other God but this one, that our God is the God, has an interesting implication to it if you think about it. Because if one God made the whole world, if one God uh, created all life, if God uh, gives us all life and breath and sustains us and provides for us, then uh, Israel's God is, in some sense, everyone's God. Because there's no other God over people. One God is over the whole world, right? 
and so uh, an idea comes about. We see it in the prophets. We see it in the Psalms that there will be a day when all the nations of the world, people from all nations will come together and will worship with Israel. They'll worship Israel's God. Uh, this is expressed a lot of different ways, but as a sample, Isaiah speaks of God's future like this. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And how do the waters cover the sea? A whole, whole lot. <laughs> so uh, the fact of the matter is, I don't know about everyone, but just about everyone here uh, is a Gentile not descended from Abraham, not part of this uh, people that God said he would bless, and yet we're here worshiping Israel's God. So what's up with that? Well, in the New Testament, we find that these promises about people from all nations coming and worshiping Israel's God are being fulfilled in Jesus. And so in the book of Acts, if you read the Acts, you'll find you start out with a relatively small church of the people that followed Jesus who were almost exclusively, well, I guess they were exclusively Jewish. And then they, uh, they gather together, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they speak in tongues, and then they go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus and they mostly probably went to Jewish people living outside Israel. There were a lot of Jewish people in that day living outside Israel. But along the way, uh, they proclaimed to some Gentiles, some people who aren't descendants of Abraham. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles, and they speak in tongues, and they repent of their sins, and they live according to God's instruction, and they become followers of Jesus. And this presents an interesting problem because the church is used to thinking of only descendants of Abraham are the people of God. What do we do with this Gentile thing? And this is a problem. They have to, uh, there's disagreement about this. Do these people need to become Jews to be part of the people of God? Or do they get to be part of the people of God as Gentiles? There's dispute about this. They get together, they, they talk it out, and they find out, they decide, they reach the conclusion if God is uh, saving Gentiles as Gentiles, who are we to say that God can't do that? So they can be part of the people of God as Gentiles. The men don't need to be circumcised. There's various food laws that, well, we're not going to expect them to follow. Um, God, in fact, they looked at the scriptures. They looked at these promises and said, you know what? God was talking about this all along. We didn't get it. Now we see what he meant. And so this has been the plan all along. Uh, this idea of uh, every kind of person being added to the people of God. And so uh, if you're familiar with the writings of Paul at all, or this figure of Paul, uh, the apostle, he's sort of thought of as the apostle to the Gentiles. God called him to go to the various nations of the world to start communities with Jews and Gentiles together. And a lot of Paul's writings have very much to do with how do you have, uh, when you're used to this idea of Jewish people being the people of God, how do you now have communities where Jews and Gentiles worship God as one people? And uh, so the book of Romans is one where I, I think that the book of Romans has everything to do start to finish with how do you have Jews and Gentiles being one people of God. Uh, if, depending on your background, you may associate uh, Romans with the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith apart from works of the law. That is an important doctrine in Romans. Paul does talk about that quite a lot. But he talks about it for yet a further purpose. The idea is uh, it, it appears that Jewish people in the church in Rome were uh, treating Gentile believers with arrogance. In other words, uh, our people are the chosen people. Ours are the ones to whom God gave the covenant. Uh, we're the ones who have had this long story with God. You're just showing up all of a sudden. So we're the superior people. And Paul says, well, yes, 
Uh, Israel is the people that God gave the law to, but here's the thing. Neither, the, neither Jews nor Gentiles have actually followed it all the way. We're both guilty of violating God's law. We're both in need of God's grace. Therefore, uh, we're both saved by grace through faith in Jesus, not by, uh, by the law that God gave to Israel. So Jews and Gentiles, in other words, are on equal footing with God because all have sinned, all find forgiveness in Jesus. And so Romans 3, 28 to 31 says it like this. We hold that a person is justified, that is, put right with God, by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. And he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So if I've done my job, when you hear God is one, you go, ah, we heard about that earlier. Um, Paul's appealing to this assertion that's crucial to Jewish identity and saying, take this thing that you affirm in prayer every day and realize that what it means is God is also the God of the Gentiles. So it's not just Jewish people who are the, who are who who to whom God's salvation is relevant. Uh, in other words, if God is the God of the whole world, God's salvation is relevant to every kind of person. Now, um, it turns out, okay, that's the sense of uh, there might have been some arrogance on the Jewish side. There also seems to have been some arrogance on the Gentile side in the church in Rome, based on what, what Paul writes to them. Um, it appears that well, okay, most Jews didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. Most people rejected him. Uh, a minority of Jewish people followed Jesus. And even by uh, the time of the book of Romans being written, most believers in Jesus were Gentiles. And so it appears that some Gentiles took this to mean, well, it, it looks like God has given up on the Jewish people because they rejected Jesus. And so we're the people. The Gentiles who follow Jesus are uh, the people of God. And you guys uh, should be looking up to us. So that's in there too. And in fact, um, the church, for most of the time there's been a church, has mostly taught that uh, the church is a replacement for Israel. Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, therefore God has abandoned them in favor of the church. Uh, and this, by the way, has led to many, many, many centuries of Christians demonizing and oppressing Jews in all sorts of horrible ways. We have a very long history of doing that. The problem is, it doesn't line up that well with what's in the Bible. So, and, and some of you may, I don't know, depending on where you come from, you may currently hold the view that the church is a replacement for Israel. So I want to disabuse you of that if you see it that way. And this should settle it. Uh, first, two, first two verses of Romans 11. Paul, Paul says, Has God rejected his people? Let it never be. Let it never be. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So I hope that settles that. <laughs> Paul goes on, Paul goes on to uh, explain what's happening using the metaphor of an olive tree. I don't know much about olive trees, but apparently, uh, at least in Paul's mind, there's two kinds of olive trees in the world that he knows. There's the wild olive tree, which bears lots of olives. Uh, and then there's the, the finer olive tree that doesn't bear as much uh, fruit, but the olives are better. And so what some would do is they would somehow break off branches from the wild olive tree and then attach branches from the finer olive tree. I have no idea how you do that, how you attach. It doesn't seem like that could be a thing, but apparently it's a thing. I don't know. 
but the, the result is you get a lot of good olives. You get the best of both worlds, right? And so Paul says, Paul uses this image and he says, uh, Israel is like an olive tree. Those Jewish people who did not accept Jesus are like branches that have been broken off. And this has made room for Gentiles to be grafted in, to be joined to the tree. Uh, and then the metaphor breaks down a little bit. And he says, you know what? If they believe, even those branches that have been broken off can still be rejoined. There's, it's not a condemning thing and say, we still hope for everyone to be joined in. So the, the branch grafting doesn't quite hold up. But uh, what he's trying to say is... Uh, it's not that God has abandoned Israel. God made promises to Israel that God is keeping. It's that Israel is being, the membership of Israel is sort of being redefined. You could think of it like that. So the church is not a replacement for Israel. The church is Israel redefined by faith in the Son of God. If God uh, is the kind of God who chooses a people and then rejects them because they don't follow his ways, then the church should be very, very nervous if that's the kind of God that we have, because we have not done a great job of following God's purposes, have we? Is that the kind of God that we have? Paul says, let it never be. So, um, all this to say, uh, there is a sense in which the church is every bit apart, and we as Christians are every bit apart, of this very long story of God's salvation of the world. And just as God chose Israel for the purpose of, of the salvation of the world, uh, we exist for that purpose too. Um, we've been talking about equipping the saints in this uh, series that we've been doing, uh, Ephesians 4, and um, the, we, we have various kinds of people with various kinds of roles, as that text tells us, and yet we serve one common purpose, that is God's salvation of the world, God's kingdom advancing in the world, uh, and I think that's really awesome. I think being a part, getting to participate in God's salvation of the world is really cool. Uh, so, okay, that's, that's sort of the theological thing I wanted to say today, and I just wanted to tease out a few implications that I think this has. There are many implications that this has, and uh, I can't tell you about all of them, but I wanted to say a few things, highlight them. Um, so, first of all, if we can get this, yeah, there we go. Uh, we are called to be a community that bears witness to an undivided reconciled humanity. So if we are Israel uh, being uh, opened up to people of every sort, then our community should bear witness to that. That means a lot of things. Uh, I've said recently to you, um, and I'm saying it again now, one of the things it means is uh, in the church there should be no second-class citizens. There should be no privileged and marginal people. There may be. I don't know if anyone here feels that way. But as I said uh, last time I talked to you, if there is a way in which you feel like uh, Basileia is more for someone else than it's for you, uh, we're committed to doing whatever hard work we have to do to address that. So I would encourage you to bravely, if you do feel like that, that is true of you for whatever reason, uh, talk to Suze, talk to Troy, talk to an elder, talk to someone who's a leadership type, uh, and, and we want to do what we can to, to fix that uh, as best we can. So I would, I would really encourage you to do that if you uh, feel that that applies to you. Uh, it also, I think, means uh, that uh, we need to make the effort to not, um, not have quarrels of a serious sort between us, not have divisions. Um, in, in Ephesians 4, where we've been spending time lately, Paul says to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And uh, one of these coming weeks, Susan's going to talk to us about how that might look for us. But this sense of needing to be a unified group that works out our stuff and is committed to one another. I think that's a part of what kind of community we are. 
the second thing I wanted to highlight, we're called to be a holy people, just like Israel was called to be a holy people. Um, to be holy is essentially to be set apart for a specific purpose, that is God's salvation of the world. And as a result, that carries the implication that we live according to God's ways and not the world's ways, and those might differ sometimes. Uh, Jared gave us a word a few weeks ago that I appreciated about this. I can't give all the details over again, but a tree that's uh, in the midst of this very strong solar wind, but there's another wind, the wind of God, that blows the tree in the opposite direction and shapes it sort of against the grain of its surroundings. Um, that's what it is to be the people of God. I don't think that we should go out trying to be different from other people or trying to look more holy. And uh, by no means can we assume that because we follow Jesus, we're holier than someone who doesn't. That's absolutely not a safe assumption. But I think it does mean that if we're being faithful to God, if we're living according to God's ways for us, then sooner or later we're going to look different from uh, the folks around us in some way. So we shouldn't, be a, uh, we shouldn't shy away from that. We should know that's part of what it means to be the people of God. Uh, and third and lastly, uh, we are a community where God is present and where God does mighty works. And I love when the songs uh, match the message. So we sang about God's presence um, in a cloud with Israel in ancient times and filling the temple and overwhelming the priests and all this good stuff. Um, so in, in Israel, as we read in Scripture, uh, God's not just an idea. God's not just a moral standard. God is actually real and present. God actually occupies space. God is present with them in the desert as a cloud. God... Uh, dwells in the tabernacle that they carry around with them in the desert. When they settle in the land and set up a temple in Jerusalem, God fills the temple with his presence. The people are overwhelmed by the presence of God. Um, there's a sense that God actually is here in a, re a real physical way with his people. Um, in the New Testament, we read that the church doesn't have a temple. Rather, we are a temple. Uh, we are a temple of God where the Spirit of God dwells. And just like in Israel, where the Spirit of God does mighty works of salvation, we have every reason to expect that God's presence among us will affect mighty works of salvation, We're talking about healing, talking about things that God's been doing in people's lives. That's part of what it means to be the people of God. So uh, if the band would come back forward, uh, I'm just going to wrap up with a quick personal story. So uh, it's been almost nine years ago now that... Uh, I wasn't walking with the Lord. I was uh, doing my own thing. I ended up in a church service more or less by accident. I didn't really know what I was getting into. And uh, I was struck by how a small church is like, uh, imagine us shrunk down to about 12 people. That's pretty much what it was. Uh, but I was amazed by how loving these people were, how accepting they were towards me, how uh, well they treated one another, um, and how enthusiastic they were to be gathered together to worship God. I had uh, grown up in church, but I had never seen anyone be excited to be at church. That, was, that blew my mind. Uh, and they began, they went into songs of praise. Uh, it's funny to look back on it because it was a David Roos song that I remember in particular. <laughs> they started to sing songs of praise to God enthusiastically. And then at some point during this song, I just realized, there's, I just became aware there's uh, more going on here than just some happy people singing some songs. There's something I can't uh, put, put to words, but there's something here. There's something profound in the room right now. Uh, there's a presence here that I have never uh, been aware of before.
And that blew my mind. And that was a Sunday night, and I woke up Monday morning, and I knew that because of what I experienced, I was never going to be the same again. And I haven't been. So if you'll join me in prayer, may we, God, God, may we be a people where you are present. May we be a people where people encounter your presence, God, in real ways, become aware of you, where people encounter you even for the first time, Lord. Make us a people who hunger for your presence, who cry out for your presence, who crave it, who will be unsatisfied until we encounter more of you, God. May we be a community where, God, where people uh, find their way to healing, where people are healed by your presence, where people come alive to uh, callings that you've given them, where they come alive to who you are, how good you are, how you see them. Uh, where they find their way to reconciled relationships, where they find their way to uh, freedom from spiritual bondage, where they uh, find their way to all kinds of works of salvation, where they find emotional wounds healed, all of this, God. I pray that by your presence you would do this in us, that you would give us a hunger for it, that you give us a craving for this above all else, that you would make us a holy people that bears witness to what you're doing in the world and that you'd help us to see how we can participate in your salvation of the world, Lord.